This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. As the nation celebrates its 244th birthday, it comes during a moment of great uncertainty over the economy, our health with the COVID-19 pandemic, and racial unrest. And there is another story which the New York Times broke just over a week ago that is leading to new questions regarding our national security and President Trump. The headline, an Afghan contractor handed out Russian cash to kill Americans. A team of reporters for the New York Times described this development as, quote, a puzzle that is rocking Washington, trying to connect the dots in this alleged bounty scheme, including following the cash. And one other point from their reporting. American and Afghan officials have maintained for years that Russia was running clandestine operations to undermine the U.S. mission in Afghanistan. For more details to explain this developing story, we turn to David Sanger. He is a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer for The New York Times. He covers national security, and he is joining us from Vermont this holiday weekend. We thank you for being with us. Great to be back with you, Steve. Walk us through this story, when you first heard about it, and so far, what has surprised you the most? Well, the outlines of the story uh, are pretty basic. They are that uh, U.S. intelligence, uh, with some help from some um, uh, foreign intelligence services as well, gathered evidence over time that uh, the Russians, who have been active in Afghanistan and very active uh, with the Taliban, have at various moments put money out for a bounty to pay Afghan or Taliban members who kill Americans. So in other words, there's basically a cash bounty for each American killed. It's a complicated story because on the one hand, we know that Russia has been uh, close to the Taliban going back many decades, right? Uh, On the other hand, uh, we know that Russia has at moments been eager to get a peace agreement together because they want to see the Americans leave Afghanistan. But the critical part of this story is that it appears that the intelligence on this, while not unanimous, there were some dissenters, and we can get into this, was included in the presidential daily brief at the end of February. And it was in the written brief. The White House insists that the president was never orally briefed. Now, only in this presidency would that be important, because in previous presidencies, what's important is what goes into the written intelligence brief, because there was an assumption that the president would read the intelligence brief every day or in the evening. Uh, president Obama used to underline that in great detail and ask the briefer the next day about a contradiction of something on page 17 with something he had read a month before. President Trump famously does not read the brief, but wants to get an oral briefing. And so the White House says he wasn't briefed because it wasn't in the oral briefing. I'm not sure which part of the story is worse, that uh, the president wasn't reading the presidential daily brief or that his briefer didn't raise this issue. But we do know that briefers are reluctant to bring up Russia-related issues for fear that the president either doesn't want to hear about it, as John Bolton wrote in his memoir, or believes that it's all part of uh, Russia raised issues by his political enemies to justify impeachment and uh, what he calls the Russia hoax, which was uh, 
the questions of uh, Russia's involvement in the 2016 election. But in any case, Russia's a very sensitive, sometimes no-go area for this president. Um, the big issue is why the president didn't respond. Because in the end, we don't have any evidence that the president tried to resolve whether the intelligence was accurate or not, held meetings to figure out how the U.S. would respond, whether or not you'd issue sanctions, whether you'd call Putin and give him a warning, whether you would do something else in return. Instead, what we do know is that the president, over the objections of many of his allies, invited President Putin to come to the G7 summit in Washington. You'll remember the Russians were thrown out of what was then the G8 after they annexed Crimea. So we're back to an old issue with this president, which is why is he so deferential to the Russians? Why does he feel that he does not need to go respond to an act of Russian aggression? There is some um, uncertainty in the intelligence, as there is in all intelligence. Um, The uh, assessment came from the Defense Intelligence Agency, which worries about protecting our troops abroad. It was uh, sent it to by the CIA, and we think that the uh, NSA, the National Security Agency, which does mostly signals intelligence, has said that they could not confirm it. So they, they did not have the same confidence level in it. And that's the basic part of the story. But here's another part of the equation. When the president did talk about Russia joining the G7, at that point, why didn't the Secretary of State or National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien or others advise the president about this potential threat to American soldiers? Great question, because um, the presidential daily brief is not just read by the president. Obviously, it's compiled by the National Security Advisor. He knows what's in the written product. Uh, Secretary Pompeo reads it with great care. You all remember he used to be CIA director. Secretary of Defense reads it. The CIA director reads it. It's also very possible that the president may not have told his aides that he was planning to invite Putin to the G7 or the G8, or that they might have advised him against it and he went and did it anyway, because he frequently says that he acts according to how he feels in his gut. But we don't know the answer to that question. We do know that Secretary Pompeo, uh, in particular, is a Russia hawk who has pursued a much more, a much tougher Russia policy than um, the president himself. It was just a few weeks ago, Secretary Pompeo came to the State Department uh, press room on an anniversary of the annexation of Crimea and said, uh, Crimea is part of Ukraine, will always be part of Ukraine. We will never acknowledge anything to the contrary. When Maggie Haberman and I interviewed President Trump during the 2016 campaign, when he was still candidate Trump, he said he didn't really understand why we were even getting upset about uh, Ukraine or sanctioning Russia, since it's a long way away and it's a bigger problem for our European allies than it is for us. Um, so the official White House policy in the national security strategy, which is that Russia is a, um, a, a renegade or rogue power, I think they refer to it as a revisionist power, differs from the policy the president himself tends to follow. I am reminded from that famous scene in the movie All the President's Men with Hal Holbrook, who played Deep Throat. Later, we found out it was Mark Felt. And he famously said, follow the money. So in terms of this bounty, where does the money lead? 
Well, there's been great investigative work that I can take zero credit for. It's been done by my colleagues Eric Schmidt and Charlie Savage and, and others who have been uh, writing about the effort to go track exactly where this money came. And there is evidence in accounts of money from the GRU, the Russian military intelligence operation, going into accounts for the Taliban. Now, you could argue that, that this is just standard support for the Taliban. Also raises the question, why is Russian intelligence supporting the Taliban? Um, but uh, that would strongly suggest that uh, perhaps they were paying these bounties or perhaps the money was for something else. There's another element to this, Steve, as well, which is if you think about the timing of this bit of intelligence, it was late February. And that is just when the president was announcing on February, I think, 28th, that they had reached a, a tentative deal in long negotiations for uh, peace with the Taliban, that Secretary Pompeo was going to go over to witness the signing in a few days, which he did in early March. And this was hailed by President Trump because he needed to get a peace deal with the Taliban to then justify pulling American troops out of Afghanistan, which was a campaign promise of his. And by the way, not just his, President Obama also at various moments wanted to pull troops out of Afghanistan. Um, and so it's conceivable that this intelligence was sensitive not only because it would raise Russia issues to the president, but because it would also uh, potentially get in the way of his ability to strike a peace deal with the Taliban. And based on the news this week from Russia, Vladimir Putin is going to be in power for at least 16 more years as the country changes the Constitution. So we will have to deal with him for another generation. You know, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, the interesting question is, can Putin last that long? He no longer has the kind of support among the Russian people that he enjoyed a few years ago. But the core of his support comes from not from the old Russia strategy after the collapse of the Soviet Union, of integrating Russia with Europe. Remember, there was discussion, should we let them into the EU? This is when they were let into the what became the Group of Eight. Should you change NATO and make it you know, less about Russia? Putin, when he came into power, decided that his best approach was to be the opposition to the West. And, you know, we have to remember, Russia and China are very different kinds of challenges. Russia's a disruptor. It seeks at all, at all times to um, get in the way of the West plans. China's a builder. It's not as much trying to disrupt the West as to build up a power base of its own. That's what you know. going into the South China Sea is all about. That's what um, providing aid to uh, nations in Europe over COVID or spreading um, the 5G networks is all about. So a very different strategy. And I think over the long term, China's a much bigger challenge to us than Russia. But in the short term, as a disruptor, as this story has indicated, Russia is still a power to be dealt with. During an interview on Fox Business, Blake Berman with this question to President Trump on the story first uh, appearing in The New York Times. If there's ever a scenario in which Russia puts a bounty on U.S. troops, how would you respond? First of all, they'd hear about it, but we never heard about it because intelligence never found it to be uh, of the of that level where it would rise to that 
When you bring something into, into a president, and I see many, many things, and I'm sure I don't see many things that they don't think rose to the occasion. This didn't rise to the occasion. And from what I hear, and I hear it pretty good, uh, the intelligence people didn't even, many of them didn't believe it happened at all. I think it's a hoax. I think it's a hoax by the newspapers and the Democrats. So based on based on what you've been briefed, do you think it is? It well, is, I think is, yeah, I, I agree with the intelligence people. I think, frankly, that many of the intelligence people didn't think it was something that even happened. And if it did happen, the Russians would hear about it, and anybody else would hear about it that was involved. David Sanger, another reference to the media, a hoax, and uh, mm-hmm. often the failing New York Times, as he often refers to uh, your yep. newspaper. Yep. Uh, for a family, New York Times, where uh, our subscription levels are looking pretty good, but we'll we'll separate that out from all the other issues. Look, what the argument the president's making here is that the, is that the um, evident the intelligence is not a hundred percent. The intelligence is almost never a hundred percent. I mean, you remember we ended up wrongly invading a country on the basis of uh, faulty intelligence about where the nuclear uh, program was, Iraq. Um, this is not quite like that. It is not a question of whether the intelligence has been politicized. The question is, how well can you confirm it? If you only had 100% verified intelligence in the pre- president's daily brief, the president's daily brief would be a couple paragraphs long instead of many pages. Intelligence is, by its nature, putting together pieces of a puzzle. And the president's daily brief is, at its most useful, people who put it together tell us, when it lays out an issue, then gives you a sense of what the um, dissents are, what the doubts are, what the conflicting interpretations might be. It's never as clean as this happened or that happened. And uh, so for the president to say nothing rises to my level that's conflicting is a bit disingenuous. Um, he gets lots of conflicting intelligence every single day. What's interesting here is that if you have conflicting intelligence, the president may come back and say, hey, look, we have to run this to ground. Because if it's true, we have to really react to it. And that's what we can't find any evidence happened. And it was obviously in the president's daily brief. It just was in the written form. Which goes to the question in your analysis piece uh, from the New York Times, if he didn't know why, and if he did know, why he didn't do something. That's right. That's right. And if all those around him knew whether they needed to flag it to him and say, Mr. President, this isn't 100 percent verified. But if it's true, it's a big deal. And we have to rethink how we're dealing with the Russians. And certainly to have the president come out months later and invite Putin to the G7 and uh, basically, you know, the president, when you ask him about Russia, he always says the same thing. Wouldn't it be good if we had a good relationship with Russia? Yes. And it would be good if we had a good relationship with China. And it would be good if we had a good relationship with North Korea and with Iran and with many other countries. But you have to get the world as it comes to you, not the world that you would necessarily want. And sometimes there are challenges to American power you simply have to respond to. When President Obama faced the evidence again, then still conflicting in the summer of 2016, that the Russians had meddled in the election, he uh, decided to confront Putin with it in uh, a summit meeting in China in uh, September of 2016. But there are many, and I've been quite critical of President Obama for this in in, a book about cyber, I wrote uh, The Perfect Weapon, that he didn't respond strongly enough. 
until, you know, well after the election. So um, timing makes a difference when you are responding to critical intelligence. So let me ask you about the threat we face today, and in particular from Russia. Is it a real threat in 2020? Absolutely. I mean, you saw it in 2016. We know the Russians are likely to be back in the the current presidential election cycle. Uh, There's already evidence that they have changed their playbook because they can't run the same moves they ran in 2016. They'd be caught. They're being a lot more subtle now. They've built some Internet infrastructure in the United States. They have uh, been good to get been very concentrated on getting their um, influence campaigns into the hands of real Americans who may not know that the memes they're playing out are Russian in origin. So it doesn't look like something's coming from the Internet Research Agency, but instead from your neighbor down the street who may have bought into unknowingly into a Russian uh, piece of disinformation. Most interestingly, last week we reported uh, with my colleague uh, Nicole Proloff on new indications that Russian criminal groups, perhaps with the backing of the Russian government, were um, using the work-from-home moment here to get into corporate networks that are easier to get into if they can get into your your less protected system at home and basically follow you in to uh, your corporate computer system. So the Russians are very active um, cyber players, as is China, as is uh, North Korea and Iran. Let me remind our listeners, we are talking with David Sanger. He is a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer for the New York Times, spending more than 30 years at the newspaper, including serving as the Tokyo Bureau Chief. He covered both the Clinton and the Bush White Houses and served as Chief Washington Correspondent, now covers national security. Let me talk about other players in the region, most notably Iran. And based on your book that we talked about just a moment ago and the headlines this week from Iran, explain what's been happening. Well, on Thursday night, early early uh, Thursday morning, um, Iran time, there was a huge explosion at a building um, on the site of the Natanz nuclear enrichment plant. This is the enrichment plant that the United States and Israel went after a decade ago with the most sophisticated cyber attack the world has ever seen. People heard about it. It's the Stuxnet worm. Uh, the the name for the operation for the U.S. and and Israel was Olympic Games. That was a code name for it. And this was a story we broke uh, nearly a decade ago. Um, Since that time, uh, Iran built up its nuclear infrastructure. It then reached a deal with the Obama administration. It built that down, shipped most of its uranium out of the country, dismantled a lot, but not all of its equipment under the deal. President Trump came in exited the deal, said it was a terrible deal for the United States, and the Iranians have been building back up since, saying, if you're going to exit the deal, we're not going to stick by it. And then on Thursday night, there was this explosion in a fairly newly opened building, a year or two old, where they're building advanced centrifuges, the machinery that that purifies uranium, and you can use it to make nuclear reactor fuel. If you keep it running longer, you can use it to make nuclear bomb fuel. Um, It sure looks like an act of sabotage. We don't know that for sure, Uh, but it sure looks like it was an explosion. And that raises the question, who did it? Uh, Was it dissidents within Iran? Was it the Israelis? Was it an Iranian uh, outside dissident group that uh, has at various times worked with the Israelis? We don't know the answer to that question yet. We're trying to find out. 
but it also may open up a new phase of our confrontation with Iran. It was only six months ago in January that the United States um, ordered the uh, killing by drone of a very major commander of the Islamic um, Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, General Soleimani, when he was visiting Iraq. Uh, he was running a lot of the Iranian operations against the U.S. in Iraq. Uh, and now, all of a sudden, a key chokehold point in their plant has blown up. So we may be headed into, along with COVID, along with all of the uh, uh, new debate about um, uh, racial issues, the police and border issues it raises in the U.S., along with the presidential election, we may be headed into a, a new moment of tense confrontation with the Iranians. Which is incredible in and of itself. So how do you try to connect the dots in this story? I realize it's early, uh, a lot more questions than answers, but what are you looking for specifically? It's a great question. The first thing we're trying to do is establish for sure whether this was sabotage. One reason we think it was is that the BBC Persian service got some warning of this attack moments after it happened, but before, hours before the news of it was out. So that tells you that somebody who planned it and was aware of it was giving you know early notice. Um, all of the outside evidence you can see looks like sabotage. I don't know how much more evidence we get of that. And the second question is, if it was sabotage, who did it? Very hard question to answer. And then the third one was, did the United States know about it uh, in advance? Is this part of the same operations that we've seen to put additional pressure on Iran? Um, the Iranians have sort of been underreacting at this point to the U.S. because I think they're beginning to think it's possible that President Trump won't get reelected. And if he doesn't get reelected, uh, maybe they should just wait it out and hope that there is a, a Biden administration that they can resume negotiations with. So they're torn between reacting to things that are putting them under pressure and a desire to sort of wait out, get through November and see what they're dealing with. And I'm curious, as you know, the Republican Party often referred to as the daddy party with reference to national security and the military. But with the story that the New York Times first broke that we've been talking about and these latest developments in the Middle East and in Iran in particular, how this is going to affect the Republican Party. I want you to listen to Representative Liz Cheney, Republican of Wyoming, part of the House GOP leadership. This is what she said regarding the story that you broke in the New York Times. But I want to be absolutely clear that America's adversaries should know and they should have no doubt that any targeting of U.S. forces by Russians, by anyone else, will face a very swift and deadly response. The Russians experienced this in Syria in 2018 when U.S. forces defended themselves with overwhelming and lethal force against likely Russian mercenary forces. In the United States, we have a free and open society. We debate policy. We debate these issues. That is the strength of our system. And that is what our adversaries, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans among them, that is what they fear the most. Those governments cannot allow their people the kind of free and open debate we have because they know if they allow their people to choose, they would lose power. Republican Liz Cheney of Wyoming and, of course, the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney. So as you hear that, David Sanger, your reaction? Well, 
Um, she's mostly white. Uh, you know, traditionally, if in the traditional Republican view and Democratic view, it would be if you harm American forces, you're going to pay a significant price. But if you're the Russians and you look at this, you, you hear the Syria uh, example that, uh, uh, that Representative Cheney pointed out there. Think about what happened the next year. President Trump, uh, under uh, the sway or pressure from the um, uh, the leader of Turkey, uh, President uh, Erdogan, uh, pulled the small American presence out of Syria. And basically, at this point, we've left Syria to Russian and Iranian um, influence, with the U.S. not seriously there. Um, so the uh, And in this case, there's reason to question whether or not the president underreacted or didn't react at all to this evidence, or even to try to go figure out how true it might be. So there may be a Russia exception in this administration. And that's why I argued in the Times the other day that the U.S. actually has two Russia policies. There's the official one, the one backed by Pompeo and others, traditional Republicans. It's pretty hawkish on Russia. And there's the Trump policy. And, you know, it's interesting. In this election, you could argue the Democrats are going to be significantly more hawkish on Russia and have been the interference in the 2016 election, then the Republicans will be. You understand Washington, D.C. politics better than uh, just about anyone else. So as we go through this campaign, and again, it's early, four months before the election, poll numbers showing that the president is down in some states, double digits. As Senate Republicans look to try to maintain control of that chamber, at what point do you sense on some of these issues they will distance themselves from President Trump? Well, you know, it's interesting. You saw them distance themselves, including what Representative Cheney just said, that there's a fair number. Mitch McConnell was sort of where he was um, on this question of the intelligence. And uh, they were taking a harsher line. They asked for intelligence briefings. Republicans got some. The Gang of Eight, the, the heads of the Intelligence and Armed Services Committee, some other leaders in Congress, got some classified briefings. So Obviously, there was intelligence on this issue to tell Congress about. And uh, I think that that means that they're going to keep the pressure on. And some of those leaders came out of those intelligence briefings and said that there were a lot of disturbing pieces of evidence that they wouldn't discuss. But that tells you there's a there sitting in that intelligence briefing. They weren't just sitting there staring at an empty sheet of paper or hearing an empty briefing uh, when they were called in this past week. So I think it's very possible that you're going to see Republicans take a much harder line on this than their their own leader, President Trump, is taking. Where do you see this story heading in the days ahead regarding Afghanistan and what your colleagues uh, first reported just over a week ago? Well, first, there's more evidence to come out. And I think one of the big issues is going to be do we learn more about the intelligence? Do we learn more specifics of what was in that intelligence brief? You've already heard the director of national intelligence and the director of the CIA denounce the leak, but you haven't heard them address the substance of the question. And I think sooner or later, this is going to force out addressing the substance of the question, particularly now that more and more people are being briefed on what was clearly closely held intelligence. So you're going to learn more about it. Um, a second issue I think this sort of brings up, Steve, is with a president who has um, begun to dismantle some of the inspector general systems, who uh, clearly has strong views against whistleblowers, 
it's possible that the people who leaked out this intelligence felt they had no internal way, credible internal way in the U.S. government to raise their objections and raise the question of whether this was being taken seriously enough. And that may explain why you read so much about this in the press and the Times and elsewhere. The Times story, while the Times was first, was almost immediately confirmed by the Washington Post, CNN, and the others. So the intelligence is out there. It's not going to go away. And uh, I think that that's going to work over a president about whom there are always questions about how he's dealt with Russia. And finally, when did you personally first hear of this story, and what was your first immediate reaction? So I first heard of this story uh, a few days before uh, all of you uh, read it, just in our internal um, uh, meetings. As I said, I didn't report this story out. I was actually focused on the cyber attacks the Russians were were, were running. Um, but my immediate reaction was, why would a president not show huge curiosity about this issue? Because if it turns out that Russian forces, Russian intelligence, with or without President Putin's prior knowledge, were targeting American soldiers in Afghanistan. That is such a huge issue because it gets to protecting the lives of Americans. How would you explain to the family of a soldier killed in Afghanistan that the President of the United States wasn't focused enough on whether or not the Russians were putting a bounty on the heads of men and women who were serving there? And yet what we're hearing from the White House is a series of conflicting um, explanations. The president didn't read the intelligence. Uh, The president wasn't orally briefed. The intelligence was a little squishy. Uh, It comes from the fake news. I mean, every time you turn around, there was a different explanation about why they didn't pay more attention. I'm less interested in what fascinates this administration, which is why is this leaking out? than I am with the question, is the intelligence correct? If it's correct, what did you do about it? What are our options? How would you create old-fashioned deterrence against the Russians to keep this from happening? From Russia to Iran to national security and cyber threats, David Sanger covers it all. He is national security correspondent for The New York Times, Pulitzer Prize-winning author, and he's joining us from his home in Vermont on this holiday weekend. We thank you for being with us. Thank you, Steve. It's always great to be uh, back talking about these issues with you. And this reminder, you can follow David Sanger on Twitter at SangerNYT. This program is available as a podcast on the free C-SPAN radio app or on the web at cspan.org. And a reminder to follow us on Twitter at C-SPAN radio. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening. 